Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. We've been doing a series which, which I've entitled Under Construction from the book of Nehemiah, mainly from the book of Nehemiah for, for quite some time. And I'm really excited about this morning's uh, word that I'm going to share with you because I think it's one of the most powerful pictures of just practical leadership in the entire Bible. You know, people often say, oh, the Bible's the spiritual book and it's super spiritual, you know, and it creates Christians who are so heavenly minded that they have no earthly good. <laughs> well, this is one of the passages that proves people, those people wrong. I mean, here is some of the most powerful and some of the most practical leadership examples in, in, in all of human literature, never mind the, just the Bible, in all of human literature. I mean, people today are still writing books. If you go and, as part of my study, I've obviously, you know, read up a bit on, on books from, based on the book of Nehemiah, and there are so many books, leadership books, written with the book of Nehemiah as the basis by Christians and by non-Christians, just because he was really such a good leader. Uh, And there's so so much that we can actually learn from him. So the the reality is that we all lead, at the very least ourselves. And the best proof that you can lead other people well is that you can lead yourself well. Okay? So all of us are leaders, and and all of our children that we are raising up should be leaders as well, are going to be leaders. Um, And therefore, the the whole issue of leadership is very important. Um, I I read something, it was an American article that that I found very interesting, and the guy listed what he called the nine toughest leadership roles. Okay, so it's from an American perspective, Uh, bear that in mind, but um, here it goes, I think some of it might... might, um, surprise you. He said at number nine, the ninth toughest leadership role is a corporate CEO. Okay? CEO of a a, a big company. Uh, Number eight, he has a U.S. congressperson, you know, someone in in political leadership. Number seven, he has an editor of a daily newspaper. At number six, he has the mayor of a city. Says, you know, where other politicians can, you know, make policies and talk a lot, mayors actually have to get something done, you know. <laughs> the streets actually have to be, you know, repaired and, and, and there has to be service delivery, the, the rubbish has to be picked up. At number five, he has, a, has pastors, rabbis, and spiritual leaders. <laughs> At number four, he has a football coach. At uh, number three, he has the second in command in any organization. (laughs) At number two, he has a university president. And at number one, he has a stay-at-home parent. Okay. Um, Why I read you that list is also, I just want you to see there's a wide spectrum of leadership. Leadership is not just the stereotypical thing that we refer to as leadership. It's a lot wider uh, and a lot bigger than we often uh, think about. And I'm going to read for us from Nehemiah um, 2, verse 10 to 20. Um, and it gives us um, one of the most straightforward and powerful pictures of a leader um, that, that I think is, is, is very helpful. So, so let's, let's just read there. I'm going to actually I'll just bring it up on the screen. So, by the way, for those who don't know me, my name's Eni Swart. <laughs> There's my picture of my lovely family. If you think my kids are beautiful, it's because I had help. I have a a beautiful wife. Uh, I chose well. (laughs) 
Um, Nehemiah 2. So it says, this, this is just after Nehemiah arrives in Judah. Uh, you know, after traveling, he, he, he was a cupbearer in um, the Persian Empire, and he was in the, in the Persian city of Susa, which was one of the, the, the capitals of, of uh, the Persian Empire, serving the king himself. And then the king gives him, of Persia giving, gives him permission to come and rebuild Jerusalem. And it says, When Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, that, that he had arrived uh, with letters from the king, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then in verse 11 it says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. Interesting, why did he wait three days and why did he go during the night? We're going to look at that in a moment. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. Probably there was too much rubble. You know, the rubble of the walls that had been destroyed was lying all over the place, and there was too much rubble, and he couldn't, couldn't pass through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. In other words, he, he sort of retraced his step. He didn't go all the way around, probably because of too much rubble in the way. He couldn't go all the way around and inspect the entire wall. So he went back, he sort of retraced his steps and, and went back through the valley gate where he um, exited the city. Then verse 16 says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any, other, uh, any others who would be doing the work. That's an interesting little phrase, who would be doing the work. Okay, I think quite an important one. Then verse 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in, in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So, Lord God, we, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and minister your word to us and encourage us and instruct us from your word. And we pray, Lord God, that we will be better leaders as we look at Nehemiah's example. So I've, I've entitled my, um, my sermon this morning, Look Before You Lead. You've probably heard the, the famous saying, look before you leap. <laughs> or you've got to look before you lead as well. <laughs> that means you've got to look and you've got to lead. You've got to do both. Um, I just want us to quickly turn to each other, just in, in, in groups of two. And just for, for, for a minute or two, uh, just share... Um, a leadership role that you are playing 
somewhere in your life that you're finding challenging. So just turn to someone, find someone in front of you or behind you or next to you, and just tell them any leadership role in your life that you're finding challenging. So I'm, I'm pretty sure all of you could come up with something somewhere in your life where you have to lead in, in, a, in a certain sense, if, and especially if you see leadership not by sort of the narrow stereotypical um, definition. And almost all leadership can be seen as constructing something. You know, some other, something that is broken that needs to be fixed, or something that is missing that needs to be put, that needs to be built up, or something that is incomplete that needs to be completed. Uh, whether it's a, a child that needs to be raised up, you know, a child that's under construction and a family that's under construction, or whether it's a company that you've started that you're busy building and that's under construction, um, or a church for that matter, you know, like ours, uh, that, is, that is under construction. Um, this metaphor of being under construction is a very powerful metaphor for leadership uh, and what leadership is like. And, and within this construction metaphor, we learn three things from, from Nehemiah and how, and how he leads. Firstly, we must inspect the problem. Secondly, we must inspire the people. And thirdly, we must uh, insert the gospel. So I'm going to look at that for a little while um, and just try and learn as much, uh, help us learn as much as we can from Nehemiah. Um, the problem that needs to be inspected usually as it is, is usually twofold. Usually the people that are in opposition and in the physical situation. They are both these things. Sometimes we miss that. We, 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 we don't always understand why Nehemiah starts with Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and then moves into you know, staying in Jerusalem and inspecting the wall. Okay? And the reason why he starts there is because he understands the problem is not just the, the physical situation. The problem is often people as well. Now, we live in a, in, a, in a culture that is very influenced by secular humanism. And secular humanism, one of the basic beliefs of secular humanism is that all people are basically good. Right? Isn't that so? That's, the, well, that's one of the fundamental, foundational assumptions of secular humanism, which is different from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all people are made basically good, but all people have fallen from that goodness. So the Bible has more of a attention, a twofold. It's not just straightforward, all people are basically good. I mean, if that were true, I mean, what do you do with all the crime? What do you do with all the oppression in the world? What do you do with all the nastiness in the world? You, you don't have a... I mean, the, the, the sinfulness of man and the brokenness and even the, the evil fallenness of man is one of the most easily verifiable teachings of Scripture. You can empirically measure it. <laughs> it's there. It's right there in your face. And yet most people, even many Christians, go with the assumption that all people are basically good. Um, and we live in a society where there's, you know, collaboration, open source, sharing, and so on. And, and all of that is good. But the reality is you cannot do open source and sharing and collaboration with everyone. Because like Sam Ballot and his, his uh, gang, not everyone has your best interest at heart. We'll be naive if we think that all people are basically good and live according to that. Very naive. And Nehemiah wasn't naive. He checked out and he, he, he didn't hate them, but he said to them, listen, yeah, he was real about the fact that they were in opposition to him. They didn't have their best interest at heart. In fact, 
<clears throat> Some people like Sambala believe that for them to, th- to thrive and flourish, other people must not. That's why they were disturbed. They were upset when someone had come to promote the welfare of the Jews because they saw the Jews as the competition. They saw the Israelites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem as a competition. And they were quite happy for them not to have walls so that they can go and attack them and raid them and so that they can lord it over them and oppress them. And they thought for them, Sambalat and, and the Sumerians, to thrive, they, the Jews must not thrive. And there are many people who have that worldview, a win-lose worldview, of in order for me to win, you must lose. But the gospel and the Bible liberates us from that and actually says, no, everyone can win together. Everyone at least who wants others to win, who actually seeks the welfare of others. Um, but the reality is there are people like Sam Ballard. Let's not be naive. Let's not be gullible. Let's listen to what the Bible says when it says there are people like Sam Ballard in the world that get disturbed when people come to seek the welfare of others because they, they think for, for me to win and for us to win, me and mine to, to flourish, other people must not flourish. Other people must be oppressed. That's a reality. Um, and, and, and we mustn't deny it. And um, if... if Probably Nehemiah waited three days before his inspection because he wanted to check out the Jewish people as well. Um, both Sambalat and Tobiah are um, Yahwistic names. That means sort of Jewish names. So they might have been Jews, you know, who lived in Samaria. They were certainly, as we're going to see later in the story, intermarried with some of the Jewish nobility. And probably Nehemiah he was a sharp guy. He was shrewd. He wasn't... He wasn't naive. He suspected that Tobiah and those guys had spies amongst the Jewish nobles, and he was right. So he probably checked out things for three days, and he didn't say anything. He didn't tell anyone what was going on. So now he goes, so it's, it's not just the people in opposition, but it's a physical situation. He goes and inspects the, the, the wall, but he does it by night. It says a few times during the night, um, I, I, I went, um, and then in, again, by night, I went through the valley gate and I inspected the walls. Um, and in verse 15, it says, uh, I went up the valley by night in examining the walls. So three times he says by night. Now, isn't that a bit strange? I mean, if you're going to examine a wall, wouldn't you be able to do it better by day than by night? Why does he do it by night? Well, we, the previous point tells us the reason. He didn't want to give his enemies an unfair advantage. He didn't want them to know what he was up to. And that's why I hadn't told anything that anyone what God had placed on his heart to do for Jerusalem. Because he knew if they heard it, they would try and nip it in the bud. They would try and stop what God was wanting to do for his people before it even started. So he went by night, examining the walls. And and here's another thing that uh, we learn about good leadership. Andy Stanley says it nicely. He says, investigate before you initiate. Investigate before you initiate. So often we make the mistake of God tells us something, God places something on our heart, just like with Nehemiah, and it really is from God, and we're so excited, we just jump in there, and we, and, and we, we start working, and we start telling people about it, start telling, in fact, everyone about it, and we end up jumping the gun. And the devil and, and, and our enemies manage to stop us and discourage us. Not because we were doing the wrong thing, but because we were doing it in the wrong way. It, it'll be wise like Nehemiah to first conceal our strategy 
and then choose the time at which we reveal it very strategically so that we can um, be successful. Um, I <laughs> recently had an embarrassing um, sort of, yeah, where, where I broke this rule, where I didn't investigate before I initiated. Um, our, our, our toilet at home was broken and it was leaking, you know, it was you know, dripping the whole time and I tried to sort of fix it and close it and it, it just kept on dripping and wasting water and so on. So eventually, and I'm not like the biggest handyman in the world, um, you know, I have people like Trevor and my brother Harry in my life who can, do, who can help me with that. But anyway, I, I, I went eventually to, to a, um, uh, what, what you call it, a hardware shop. First went to Builders and they, were too, they didn't have the thing and they were too expensive in any case. So I found another little shop which was actually quite um, affordable and so on. And the guy was very nice and so he hel- I said to him, listen, yeah, the handle has broken and, and the thing's leaking. So I, I got sort of a, the stuff I thought I needed and I went back and I put it in and it was still leaking. And I realized <laughs> it wasn't just the handle and, and, the, and the, the flushing mechanism. Uh, in fact, it wasn't just the handle and stuff. It was the, the whole flushing mechanism. Because I thought it was just the handle, you know, that wasn't closing properly. So, so this middle flushing mechanism that lifts out and lets the water through, that was also broken. So I went back again, uh, took the handle back and got, you know, a kit with that had a handle and a flushing mechanism. And I went back and I put that in. And it still didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized it's not just the handle and the flushing mechanism. It was also the mechanism that let in the water that was broken. Oh, no. And now it was getting close to 5 o'clock and the guy wanted to close. And I, too, fortunately, it was only a, about a kilometer away. So I was, you know, got the stuff out again, you know, and loosened the bolts and stuff and put it in the bags and rushed back to the guy and said, no, it's still not right, you know, and I, I need this as well. So I'd already bought this other kit, so the guy was very nice. And he said, okay, I'll take that back. You've already opened the bag, but I'll, I'll be nice. You know, I'll take it back and I'll give you the right stuff. So I bought like the whole kit, you know, that has the handle, the flushing mechanism, and the mechanism that lets the water in. And I went back and I put it. So I ended up driving to the hardware store three times. Well, I could have driven just once if I'd investigated before I initiated. <laughs> now, I just heard the dripping water, you know, the water running, and, I, and my wife told me, no, the thing's broken, you know, the handle and stuff is broken. So I assumed that's all that was wrong. I assumed. And good leadership does not assume. Good leadership investigates. It inspects the problem. Leadership is all about solving problems, in, you know, in, in, uh, if you look at it from a certain angle. But you cannot solve problems and ha- use, uh, lead other people to solve problems if you don't have an accurate, accurate information about what the problem is. So we've got to investigate before we initiate. And we've got to investigate accurately. The, the quality of your leadership depends on the quality of the information you have. You can't lead better than the information you have. If you have inaccurate information, you're going to give inaccurate leadership. And that's why good leaders make it their business to get accurate information. And good leaders know (laughs) that as leaders, the things that you most, that the the things that you least want to hear are often the things that you most need to hear. The things that you least want to see are often the things that you most need to see. No one likes seeing problems. No one likes hearing about problems. But if you want to be a leader, you've got to be open. And you've got to create a culture in your church, in your family, in your company, wherever you you work, where it's okay to bring problems. Because people don't want to be the bringers of bad news. So people filter what they tell leaders. 
Okay, any leader know, that knows that, that ex, that's experienced that? Okay? In other words, um, you know, the, more, the higher up you go in a, in, in a, in a business or corporation, the, the, least li- the, least, the less likely you are to hear what you most need to hear. Because well, people will filter, because they don't want to be the bringer of bad news. So they'll filter what they tell you. And they'll tell you what they think you want to hear. And then sometimes, like Nehemiah, you've got to go and inspect the walls yourself to hear what's going on. Can you see the wisdom in this? This is just very down-to-earth practical wisdom. Okay? So, um, the first uh, step is to inspect the walls. And like I said, the quality of our leadership is directly proportional to the quality of the information we have. Um, then the second thing is we need to inspire the people. And, and this is beautiful, and this is at the heart of good leadership, of what uh, Nehemiah does here. Um, I think it's uh, Andy Stanley who says, leadership is not always about getting things done right. Leadership is about getting things done through other people. Okay? Nehemiah says here in verse um, 16, um, the officials didn't know where I was going because, I had, uh, because as yet I had, not, I had said nothing to the Jews and to the priests and nobles or, or officials or any others who would be doing the work. There's that phrase, who would be doing the work. In other words, Nehemiah understood that leadership is not getting things done as much as it is getting things done through other people. So often you get guys who are very qualified, very competent at what they do. But they often don't make good leaders. Because they're only competent at doing it themselves. They're not competent at raising other people up to do it. And they don't have the patience to do that. They'd rather, oh, you know, come on, you're messing it up. Let, let me do it, you know, and they take it back. And, and, and people can't learn, and people can't grow, and people can't follow when, when, they, when they're part of their team. But good leadership sometimes means you must hang back when you can do it better and say to them, no, you do it. We do that with our kids, right? And it takes patience. Now, you, you can tie your kids' shoelaces better than they can initially, and it's sometimes frustrating to, to watch their little hands struggle, you know, with those shoelaces. But them struggling with it is the only way they're going to actually learn to do it. Now, that same principle, which is so intuitive and so obvious when it comes to children. I mean, many parents make the mistake of only just, you know, tying their kids' shoelaces the whole time. And the kids, you know, never learn to tie their own shoelaces. Or they're constantly stepping in the whole time and, and protecting their children from the consequences of their actions. And the kids never learn responsibility. And then they're surprised, you know, when the kids leave home and the kids don't have any sense of responsibility or ability to, to, to discipline themselves. And it's the same in all forms of leadership. Leadership, um, another definition of leadership is that leadership is getting people to want to do what they ought to do. Leadership is getting people to want to do what they ought to do. Um, so leaders, leaders seek to get buy-in. What leaders want to do, if, if leadership is getting things done through other people, then, then it's crucial as leaders that we get buy-in from people. And that's exactly what, what Nehemiah does, doesn't he? At the end of his little speech, the, the Jews say, let us start rebuilding. He's gotten buy-in. Okay? But how does he get it? And, and, and what I'm going to share with you once again is very simple, but just because it's simple, don't miss the fact that it's, that it's actually quite profound. Um, and 
it's not profound because it's my ideas, it's profound because it's the Bible's ideas, because um, Nehemiah was a great leader. So, how do we get by him? Okay? Firstly, we need to state the problem. I, I heard somewhere that the first job of a leader is to define reality. Tell it as it is. Explain to people what, what, what reality is like. And, and, and here we should be realistic. Many people think that in order to be a leader, I must be an optimist. I must be like rah, rah, you know, and hype people up. And even though there's a place for encouragement, there's also first a place of actually just being very cold and realistic and straightforward and facing the facts and telling people as it, uh, things as it is. Um, so, so we must be realistic. You know, as Christian leaders aren't raving optimists. Christian leaders are hopeful realists. We're realistic about what's going on, but we're also hopeful that things don't have to stay the same. Okay? Um, I'm, I'm not, maybe I should just put up that scripture. Um, in other words, Christian leaders face the facts. Here in Romans 4, it says about Abraham. Listen to this, because many people are confused about faith. They think, okay, faith is denying the facts. Faith is ignoring the facts. That's what many people think faith is. And that's not at all what faith is. Faith is facing the facts. But despite the facts, believing in God, that God is greater than the facts. Okay? So without weakening his faith, this is about Abraham. He, Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old, almost. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was, already, was also dead. So when, when you're 100, almost 100, and your wife is about 90, okay, you've got to face the fact that having children is, the, <laughs> is not going to be like the easiest thing in the world. Okay? But it says there, without weakening in his faith, he faced the facts. In other words, you can face the facts without weakening your faith. So this whole prosperity gospel, you know, Faith formula idea that you must deny the facts in order to have faith is absolute nonsense. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith says, I face the facts, but I believe I have more trust in God, that in what God can do, than in what my body cannot do. Okay? That's faith. So, so Christian leaders must face the facts. Um, and then the second step, uh, so state the problem and, and do it realistically. Be honest about it. Don't downplay the problem and sugarcoat it. Second, suggest a solution. In other words, you, you don't only talk about what is, you also talk about what should be. Um, it's interesting. Note Nehemiah's inclusive language. He says, you see the problem that we are in. Okay? You see the problem that we are in. And then he says, come, let us. Rebuild the walls. Let me just see if I can find that. In verse 17, yeah. See the trouble that we are in. Now, he's only been in Jerusalem for three days, and already he's talking about we. And then he says, come let us rebuild the walls. So see the inclusive language that he uses. He says, I'm associating with you. I'm, I'm one of you. Let us do this together. Okay? So the first part of his solution is, you know, let's do it together. You know, getting a team together, getting a, a sense of community and team uh, amongst the guys. Um, and then also, it's interesting, he says, you see the trouble we are in. You know what they've known? I mean, for decades now, the, the 
the city has been in ruins. For decades now, they've been fa- defenseless. The walls broken down, the, the, the gates burned. For decades now, all of them have known what the problem is, yet no one has done anything about it. Why? They only saw the problem. But leaders can see potential in every problem. Leaders can see solutions where others only see problems. And leaders have the guts to do something about it. Leaders can often see more in the dark than others can see in the light. Remember Nehemiah went by night to inspect? (laughs) So, um, I just want you to also notice that Nehemiah cared about the walls of Jerusalem because he cared about the people of Jerusalem. Because the walls were protecting the people. But Nehemiah cared about the walls, but the walls were only a means to an end. He cared about the walls because, those were, because he cared about the people that needed to be protected by those walls. And that's why he brought the solution of, let us rebuild. Okay? And then we must show why it's urgent. So we, we state the problem, we, we suggest the solution, and then we show why it's urgent. Um, he says, the, uh, when we do this, we will no longer be in disgrace. We will no longer be in disgrace. Um, in other words, not only the Jewish people, but God himself was getting a bad reputation because of what was going on here. They were in disgrace. And he cared not only about the people of the city, but he cared about the God of the city. Because people were saying, "Oh, your God's not strong enough to protect you. Your God's not strong enough to take care of you. Our gods, because we conquered you and we're ruling you, are stronger than your God. And not only were the Jewish people in disgrace, but their God was in disgrace. And, and he was saying, listen, this can't go on like this anymore. This needs to change now. This needs to change now. If this problem goes unsolved, then this situation will not change. I just want to read you a little something. Um, that I thought was quite helpful. Um, once again, Andy Stanley he says, To cast a convincing vision, you have to define the problem that your vision addresses. For Nehemiah, the problem was obvious. Jerusalem was in ruins. It was a problem uh, for the Jewish people. But it wasn't until he drew their attention to it and put forth a plan of action that they they felt compelled to do something about it. Every vision is a solution to a problem. If your vision doesn't get traction, something needs to happen Uh, that needs to happen won't happen. A problem will continue to go unaddressed. So, what problem does your vision propose to solve? Every successful organization, for-profit or non-profit, is viewed by its customers and clients as a solution to a problem. If you don't believe me, Google uh, Business Solutions, you'll get more than 440,000 results. Why? Because a business knows its future hinges on the uh, perception that its product is a solution to someone's problem. The same is true of your vision. Buy-in by others hinges on your ability to convince them that you are offering a solution to a problem that they are convinced needs to be solved. So can you see how simply but effectively Nehemiah actually states that? He states the problem. You see what, what trouble we are in? He states the solution, come let us rebuild. And he tells them you know, what will happen if if this problem doesn't go unsolved, we'll continue and God will continue to be in disgrace. But then he does more than that. He doesn't only share the problem and the solution and show why it's urgent, but he also shares God's involvement in it. It says there that um, 
I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And, and that's very powerful because you see often what we do as leaders is we start fires. You know, you know, you get a lot of leaders who are alarmist and say, oh, you know, it's so bad. You know, the world is ending and this is wrong and that's wrong. And look at the political situation and look at the economic situation. And all of those things might be true. But if you only say that, you're not being a good leader. You see, he didn't only tell them what the problem was and, and suggest a solution, but he also showed them God's involvement. He says, he gave a testimony that revealed God's hand that was upon him for good. And he gave what the king had said, who was ruling over that area, and who had to give permission for them to rebuild. The very same king, by the way, who a few decades ago, I think it was about 13 years ago, had stopped Ezra and them when they started trying to rebuild the wall in Ezra 4. The very same king, Artaxerxes, now turned around his foreign policy and said, no, I give you permission, not only permission to rebuild, but I send you the resources and the people. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And he was saying, listen, be encouraged. God is in this. Now is the time. You can see God's hand in this. We are not alone in this. We are not fighting this battle alone. You are not building your family alone. It might be tough, but God is with you. You might, you, you might be discouraged about your business and, and how things are struggling and how people aren't getting it, but God is with you. His hand is upon you for good. We are not building God's church alone. Jesus says, I will build my church. I'm with you. My hand is upon you for good. And people need to know about the gracious hand of God that was upon us. And that's one of the reasons why I love Chantal's testimony. Because she went through difficult circumstances, but God's hand was upon her. God's gracious hand was upon her for good. God's gracious hand is upon us for good. We constantly have testimonies of what God is doing in our midst. Yes, we experience suffering, we experience hardship, we experience opposition. But God's gracious hand is upon us for good. That's encouraging. We're not doing this alone. We're not doing life alone. Christianity is, is not something you can do alone in any case. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible if you do it in your own strength. You need God's gracious hand upon you. And then finally, he shut out the opponents. Um, they were ridiculing and so on and... and, um, and and Nehemiah answered them. And the reason why I answered them, I mean, sometimes it's okay to ignore opposition and guys who ridicule you. But, but sometimes you have to answer them. And the, the main reason why Nehemiah answers them is for the sake of his followers. Because they were making public, publicly they were mocking and ridiculing them and trying to discourage them from the work that they were doing. And he had to therefore publicly answer them. And notice, they come with, you know, all kinds of secular angles. You know, ah, you won't be able to do it. Practical. Um, you know, you're rebelling against the king. Political. And, and that's the, the very reason that it had worked 13 years before with, with Ezra and them. That's why they tried it again. They never mentioned God. But the first thing that Nehemiah mentions is God. In his answer, he says, the God of heaven will give us success. And we, who are we? His servants will start rebuilding the wall. And you have no part in it. And you have no right to stop us. And he draws a line in the sand. He shuts out the opponents. But it's interesting to me how he brings God into his answer. And, he, and, and, and for the sake also of his followers, he reframes the situation as this is not just a fight against, you know, a political fight between the Sumerians and the Israelites. This is a, this is a spiritual fight between God and his enemies. Those who are against the welfare of God's people. 
Um, so, the third thing, insert the gospel. I just want to say a few things about that in closing. Uh, just notice the, 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 how Nehemiah brings in what God does along each step of the way. He first says, you know, he talks about what God had placed on his heart. Now remember, everything we read here in those 10 verses, 11 verses, is a summary. So everything that is said is a summary. Everything that is done is summarized. He obviously would have said a lot more. But he says, God had placed certain things on my heart. In other words, God was involved in the planning phase and the initiating phase of this thing. Okay? Then it says, it talks about the, the good hand or the gracious hand of my God that was upon me. And it's God is not only placing things on my heart, but God wants, not only giving wisdom to my heart, but he wants to give strength to our hands. And that's why in the very next verse it says, um, let us rebuild. Let us start rebuilding. And then it says, uh, and they began this good work. But the NIV is a bit of a bad translation there. If you go to the ESV, which is a more literal translation, it says, um, and they strengthened their hands for this good work. Literally, that's what it says. So when they heard of God's gracious hand that was upon them, they strengthened their hands for this good work. And sometimes we have a problem with God's involvement and our involvement. You know, if God's hand is upon us, why must we strengthen our hands? Or, you know, some people strengthen their own hands without even taking consideration of God's hand, not even desiring God's hand. But the Bible and Nehemiah never had a problem with this tension. He was saying, God's hand is upon me, but God manifests his hand through my hand. So because God's hand is upon me, I must strengthen my hands. We must strengthen our hands for this good work. Um, and then when, when they get opposition, he also brings God in and he says, the God of heaven will give us success. So in the planning phase, in the execution phase, and in the opposition phase, he brings God in. In other words, he's saying this does not depend solely on us, and that's the gospel. The good news, that, that's why the gospel is called good news, not good advice, because it's good news about what God does to save us, not good advice about what we must do to save ourselves. <laughs> right? And, and, and he brings in the gospel. But I, I also don't want you to miss the fact that, that Nehemiah, as a good leader, is a, also imperfectly pointing us to the greatest leader of all, to Jesus. I mean, if, if you think about the fact that Nehemiah came from Susa, he was very comfortable, he was very rich. He dined. His normal, everyday dinner was the feast of the king. Tasting his wine and tasting his food, eating with him right there next to him. I mean, he, he dined sumptuously. <laughs> he was rich. He lived in the palace. He was comfortable. And he let all of that go to come and associate with his people in Jerusalem in a broken down city with our enemies that can attack them and no walls to protect them. Jesus gave up more than that. He had the glory of the Father in heaven where there's no suffering, where there's no sin, where there's no sickness, where there's no pain, where there's no ridicule. And he left all of that to come down and associate with us, become one of us. Nehemiah went around and inspected the walls. He inspected the problem. Well, Jesus became human to inspect the problem. And where Nehemiah only went halfway, not even halfway around the walls to inspect them, Jesus went all the way through the human experience to inspect it. I just want to read you this. You need to get this. This is, this is in my opinion, really powerful. It's something that, um, that I learned from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, 
you know, people often think, you know, those who are sinners, you know, they understand sin and they understand temptation. You know, those who, who, who actually sin. But he says that's not true. People who give in to sin don't know how far that temptation would have gone. So they might have given up, you know, only sort of 10% through the temptation or, or 50% through the temptation. The only one who knows the full extent of temptation is the one who's gone completely through it. So people who are sinners and who give in to sin easily don't actually understand temptation. In fact, in all of human history, there's only one who fully understands temptation. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is the only one who understands the full extent of temptation. <laughs> he's the only one who understands the full extent of the problem because he's the only one who went all the way around the city to inspect it. He's the only one who went through every temptation. And he was tempted in every way just as we are. And he went through every temptation that we fall, fell in. He went through and he resisted it. And he, he understands our temptation better than we do. Much better. And that's why he encourages us, because he knows if we just hang in there a little while longer, we'll be through the temptation. You can only go halfway into a forest. Because if you go past halfway, you're not going in anymore, you're going out. Likewise, you can only go halfway into a temptation, and then you're on your way out. <laughs> um, but not only that, the Jews said, let us rebuild. But Jesus says, I will build my church. In other words, he, he does something that we cannot do. In Matthew 16, verse, verse 18, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. But he, he also gives us involvement in it. He doesn't say, okay, I'll build my church, and, 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 and you can do nothing. Um, I'm not going to read it to you, but, but if you look at, um, I think it's um, 1 Corinthians 3 from verse 10, about, for about five verses, he talks about us building on him and in him. Now that we're on him and in him, we can build with him, and, we, and he can actually build through us um, in, in ways that we, that we didn't know before. So, um, so we can actually lead much, much better. Now, when we understand the gospel, that we have a living hope, that no matter what goes wrong, in the end we win, then we can state the problem much more boldly. We don't have to play down the problem and try and psych people up because we can be realistic about the problem because we have a living hope. Of course, our living hope doesn't depend on us solving this problem. Even if we fail at this one, we'll still win in the end. So we can be more realistic when we state the problem. Um, we can suggest better solutions, solutions that are not only you know, single bottom-line solutions of making more money, but multiple bottom-line solutions of... Yes, making more money, making sure people have salaries and so on, but also making sure the environment and, and, and the community benefits from it. And also making sure um, that, um, yeah, that people actually grow through it, that they don't get you know, stomach ulcers you know, <laughs> because you put them under unfair stress. You know? But they, they grow as people as part of it. But we can do this because we're walking in line with the gospel and we're making sure that all our solutions that we suggest lines up with the ultimate solution that God has given through the gospel. Uh, we have a greater sense of urgency because we know that what, you know, this world is just a dress rehearsal for eternity. What you, to quote um, Gladiator, what, what you do in time echoes in eternity. 
And we don't have forever to reach people. We only have as long as we live to reach those who love as long as we live. We only have while we live to reach those who live while we live, as Reinhard Bonke says. And then even more than Nehemiah, God works through our, um, you know, he, he placed something on Nehemiah's heart to do, wisdom, and then he worked. His, his gracious hand was upon Nehemiah to strengthen his hands. Now, God has even, that even more with us, um, according to the gospel. Let me just read you um, Philippians 2. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will, God has placed on my heart, and to act, God's gracious hand has strengthened my hand in order to fulfill his good purpose. Can you see how God does that? He does for us even more than he did for Nehemiah under the old covenant. He does for us in the new covenant. And then finally, um, Jesus answered our enemies even better than Nehemiah answered the enemies of the Jews. Look at what Colossians 2 says, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. It was all the enemies standing accusing us and mocking us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is the ultimate answer to our enemies. The ultimate answer. And therefore, we can answer our enemies better. If we follow Jesus' leadership, if we're in Christ, we will be better leaders, not only in church, but in our families, in our businesses, in our circle of friends. We will be better leaders all around because we're following the ultimate leader, the one to whom Nehemiah only points imperfectly. And God has called us to be such leaders. To be such leaders. In other words, if I can put another spin, a different spin on look before you leap, not only look to the situation, but look to Jesus before you lead. Look to Him and you will lead better because you lead like Him. The reality is you can only be such a leader if you have such a leader. Is Jesus your leader? Are you following Him? Is He leading the construction project in your life, the reconstruction project? Is He your Nehemiah, the leader who is greater than Nehemiah? Is he, the, is he the one that you're listening to and saying, come, let us rebuild? I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. If Jesus is not your leader, he has sent me today to, to say to you, he wants to be your leader. You, you know, there are so many movies where, where the guys, you know, where, where there's an enemy invasion, an alien invasion, and the, you know, they jokingly say, "Take us to your leader." <laughs> well, who am I? Who is our leader? Our leader is Jesus. If you will, I will take you to our leader, and He will do for you more than what Nehemiah was able to do for the Jews, and He will do for you what he has done for Chantal as an example. 
He will lead you, yes, into difficult circumstances. But in those difficult circumstances, He will use you and He will be with you and He will strengthen you and He will save you from the things from which nothing else can save you. So I want to ask you, if there's anyone here this morning, you, you, Jesus is not your leader or you're not sure whether Jesus is your leader and you want to make certain this morning. If, if that's you this morning, I just want you to put up your hand and say, that's me. I need to respond. I want to have Jesus as my leader. Is there anyone like that? It says, I'd like to respond to that. Okay, if there's no one, then I want us, I presume we are all Christians. Then I want you as a Christian to look at Jesus so that you can lead. Look before you lead. Look to Jesus so you can lead like him. Lead like you have been led. Say, Lord Jesus, how do I need to lead in my school or in my business or in my family? How would you have led these people? How, how would you have led if you were not in charge? Because Jesus wasn't politically in charge when he led in Israel. Just, just ask the Lord, and I, and I, and I really want you to, to expect that the Lord will show you something. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are our leader. Lord, and we, we just confess to you that leadership is the biggest problem in our country today. Bad leadership. But we also know that leadership in some sense is the only solution. Good leadership. And we pray, Lord, that you will not only raise up good leaders, but that you'll raise us up as good leaders, wherever we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.